Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Al Atkins. Hi, Al. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information on shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about sex trafficking and what to look for. In the last 10 years, uh, helping victims of sex trafficking receive the treatment they need. Um, that's along with increased treatment and prosecution of sex trafficking um, has become really big in this last 10 years. So we're looking to educate ourselves on this topic. And it is also National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And to do that, we're honored to have with us victim specialists at the Denver Division of the FBI and DAR. Andar received her bachelor degrees from Illinois State University and two master's degrees in forensic psychology and counseling from Marymount University. Anne entered the FBI in 2008 and works as a victim specialist on Denver's Rocky Mountain Child Exploitation and Human Trafficking Task Force, combating domestic sex trafficking. She coordinates the Front Range Anti-Trafficking Coalition of local, state, and federal law enforcement, working together with non-governmental organizations to provide comprehensive victim-centered services to trafficking victims and trains law enforcement entities on a national level. She was awarded the Law Enforcement Victim Advocate of the Year in 2016 for her human trafficking cases, specifically the Brock Franklin case, which received the longest sentence in U.S. history for a human trafficker at 400 years to life. Anne has received acclaim in her field since this time and received the Medal of Excellence Award for Outstanding Service and Director's Award from U.S. Attorney General, US Attorney General Eric Holder. In her free time, Anne has traveled to all but three of our 50 states, and she's working on completing that list. Anne, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I thought I'd start things off. Just uh, Why don't you provide like a working definition of human trafficking and, and sex trafficking? Yes, thank you. So first of all, though, I do want to say that um, when it comes to um, human trafficking, sex trafficking, uh, working um, in this realm, uh, sex trafficking is offensive. So some of the terms and definitions that we'll go over today can be offensive. And, um, but unfortunately, that's just the world that uh, we work in, that uh, we've had uncovered from this dark world. And so I definitely want to put that out there that it can be triggering to folks who are listening um, with some of that terminology today. Um, so when it comes to sex trafficking, I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions uh, that it can be foreign nationals, that it can happen from other people from other countries, but it's our own U.S. citizens. It's our own kids in our own backyards. It's kids that we go to school with. It's our neighbors. Um, it could be our nieces or nephews. And so with that, it's anything that um, is sex in exchange for something of value. So that could be money, it could be drugs, which unfortunately has been such a 
epidemic lately, especially what we're seeing here with the fentanyl problem. Um, it's a sex in exchange for a place to stay, for food, for your basic needs. And so with that, that's what we're looking at and understanding when it comes to sex trafficking. I want to say a few things, um, kind of piggybacking on what you're saying, um, that are important to me. One is that we are really grateful to have you on the show and there's a certain glamor, um, to you being an FBI victim specialist and to, uh, you having kind of been involved in this historic, um, landmark case. We're grateful to have you on the show, and we want to respect that this is a solemn topic and that um, while it's exciting to have someone from the FBI on the show, um, this is something that is uh, that we are going to do our best to handle with the, the gravity and respect that it deserves. Um, I also just want to mention something slightly tangential, but I think very important and related which is how does this affect everyone? Um, Pornhub recently had to take down an enormous percentage of their videos because they were trafficking. There is currently a public, a very public figure in the news who is being tried for trafficking women and up having them upload their uh, work, their sex work, their forced sex work to, I think, only fans and, and other websites. Um, this is touching people. This is touching everyone in ways that people may not realize. And I think it just, I want to also link it to, these are some of the ethical implications um, of porn watching that maybe the, the APA hasn't addressed. Um, and with that, thank you for uh, kind of allowing me to go astray for a moment. Oh, absolutely. And I think what is really relevant in this topic is that these victims are often discovered. They're not disclosed victims. And so it's really important, especially with having, you know, exposure on a podcast like this, where we can have these open discussions about recognizing the indicators uh, I think there's a statistic out there from Shared Hope International that a victim of human trafficking may be in contact with a professional, whether it be from a healthcare setting, law enforcement, uh, child welfare, the school districts of not being recognized at least nine times before they're actually identified as a trafficking victim. Oh, wow. So when it came to our task force, we thought, how can we bring that number down? How can we put some parameters in place? How can we be more proactive instead of reactive when working these cases to be able to go out and train and have that one-on-one -on -one contact with, for example, healthcare providers to be able to recognize and identify human trafficking victims coming through the emergency room, coming through pregnancy or health clinics or through the psych units to be able to recognize and say, hey, I really think this may be a trafficking victim. How can we be proactive in assisting and helping them? So that's where we're really unique with our task force is because we have switched the script to be in more proactive instead of reactive. So I really wanna express wow 
that these victims are discovered. They don't come up to the FBI, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm a human trafficking victim. That just does not happen. It is very much tip-based and recognition of finding it through these indicators. And Anne, do you mind going into a little bit about why that is, why these victims tend to be more discovered rather than disclosed? You know, I think that a lot of it is the Stockholm syndrome. It's having that trauma bond. We all know with domestic violence victims, you see them going back and back and back again to their abuser. This is 10 times that. It's Stockholm syndrome is where you have a bond with someone that you depend on someone for just your basic needs. And it's such an intense bond that I think a lot of times some of the questions that get risen, especially in our cases from defense attorneys is, why didn't they just leave? Why couldn't they just walk out the front door? Which in a lot of circumstances, they probably could, but that intense trauma bond that they have, they feel like they are dependent on their captor for every single basic need. And so with that, it's very difficult for them to raise their hand, to report, to leave, because there's so much in fear of threats. Uh, There's so in fear of um, that, you know, issues of self-esteem, of guilt, of shame, of going back to a life where, you know, the trafficker may have um, told them that that no one would ever accept them again because they're looking for that promise of acceptance, a better life, a relationship for love. And so because of that, they're so dependent um, on that relationship. And, and, and just because you mentioned that, I want to just read directly from, this is from the Daily Beast, um, because this is currently going on and it's it's huge on, on social media. The so-called king of toxic masculinity and accused human trafficker, Andrew Tate, allegedly put young women tattooed with the words owned by Tate on his sex cams, according to London-based paper, The Times. And I want to say that I had also um, read that I think two of them stood up for him or are standing up for him in trial. And that speaks very much to, I think, some of the frustrations that we face as physicians when we meet these um, young people who are involved in human trafficking, who we see very much as victims, who we think we could really help. And they will go to the ends of the earth to, to not tell us anything. Absolutely. And that, and that is a really great point. I also had a case where the victims actually went on um, the media and tried to do a campaign to free their pimp uh, because they had that unique trauma bond where they really felt like they were quote unquote, a family. And so with that, they will go to the ends of the earth because of how much of that brainwashing that happens. And I know you mentioned uh, the tattoo. Uh, We see often the brandings that they have. um, And a lot of times it's the monikers. uh, It may be a symbol. And what we do once we see those is we offer assistance with getting them removed or we try to offer tattoo cover-ups. So we work really closely with tattoo parlors to be able to get those cover-ups for them so they don't have that reminder. So when we see um, victims of sex trafficking in our clinics, 
um, you know, and being sensitive to um, Stockholm syndrome, how can we engage? How can we best engage with them knowing that this issue is present? I think it's just having an initial conversation with them to start building that rapport. We often encounter that when, let's say, we're doing an operation uh, to recover victims. It's that initial contact with that victim where I think one of the myths is is that they want to be rescued, they want to be saved, and in reality, because of that Stockholm Syndrome, they are not there. And so they are fearful of being um, in trouble. Um, They're in fear of being removed from the situation because if they leave, then there are so many threats that are circulating around them, whether that be threats to family members, for their safety, for, you know, other people involved in their life that that are at risk. And so it's having that initial conversation of rapport to say, you know, and especially with healthcare providers, because I, you know, would imagine that that is the most trusted person for them besides who they feel is, you know, someone that they love. And so having that conversation or dialogue with them just to say, hey, you know, when was the last time you had anything to eat? When was the last time you drank any water? Um, How are you surviving? Um, How long have you been on the run? Who is a good support system in your life? Um, just kind of addressing some of their just most basic needs, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Sure. Uh, so that way they know that they can start having that comfort that will bring down their walls just enough to then start asking more questions of, you know, Hey, um, is there something that I can do for you? Um, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z, um, Mm. you know, I see that you have bruises right here. I see that there may be concerns with your body with uh, multiple STIs or having multiple partners. You know, let's have a conversation about body safety. Uh, So it's really trying to engage in building that initial rapport because I know you and I can talk about, you know, hey, when was the last time I ate? Hey, I had lunch, you know, a couple hours ago. But sometimes there are rules that they have to follow in this world, in this life, in this game. And in those rules is they sometimes have to choose sleep over eating, or some of them are being withheld food for many days because they didn't meet their nightly quota. So with that, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, just shame and guilt around having any kind of a healthy lifestyle. So it sounds like um, to focus really on making observations rather than any sort of accusations or put any sort of um, uh, conclusions in there or judgments in there, and then also sticking to really trying to show you care about their basic needs and, and assessing whether they're able to get their basic needs met. I, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And And again, I think a lot of it is that assessment of understanding what those visible signs are, whether that be bruises, black eyes, it's the behavioral aspect, whether or not they're having fear, anxiety, that submission, um, if they have somebody who's in the room that's taking over uh, answering questions for them or having some kind of control over them. Um, It's obsessing over their phone as someone is constantly Mm -hmm. messaging them. It's understanding those terminology 
um, of what is in the life or in the game, um, whatever they have on them, whether or not they don't have that control of their identification, if they have condoms or lubricant or lingerie that you kind of see around them. Um, sometimes it's unexplained expensive clothing, uh, whether or not they, you know, may not be able to afford having your hair done, your nails done. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, talking about that, those tattoos um, and mm -hmm. not being able to explain what those tattoos mean. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to victim specialist Ann Dar from the FBI. Uh, and um, this is really fascinating about some of the things that we can look for and then enter these conversations about maybe things that are overlooked. Um, so I want to get a little bit deeper in some of these things. So when, when you notice there's undue influence or they're asking to be seen together, perhaps by the perpetrator and the victim, um, any suggestions about how you handle that situation? I know that, you know, it, it, it's hard to maybe like, if, can we can we get some uh, a, a reason for seeing them just by themselves or what, what would you recommend if they're if they're asking to be seen together? That happens sometimes. Oh, definitely. And so I think that's one of the biggest obstacles is if they have somebody who seems controlling and they're being submissive is how can you separate them? Like, Hey, you know what? We need to take you to get an x-ray or, um, you know, we need to really talk about some of your body. So let's have some of these, um, conversations in private or, Hey, we need to go down the hall for this, you know, extra exam. You know, we just need you to go by yourself any way, shape, or form that you can get them by themselves to be able to pinpoint, ask some of the questions. And if anything, it's having some of the resources on hand by giving them the hotline number, um, by giving them, you know, uh, a place where they can, you know, go later on because sometimes they're not ready. They're not ready to leave. Obviously, if it's a minor, that's a whole different story. But if we're talking about an adult, that yes, it's just making sure that they have something tangible that they can use to leave later on if they do not want to leave right then and there. And and that that gives me some pa panic. Um, and and the reason is, and I, I've been fortunate enough to kind of you you gave some of the doctors I work with your information, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to contact you when I had people I thought were being trafficked, and and that's gone well. Um. I, the idea of, well, maybe they're not just ready. They're just not ready yet. Mm -hmm. I have this fear that I'm never going to see them again. Like, right. like that their, their pimp is going to say, well, that was a close call. That doctor seemed aggressively curious, um, which I think all of us should be right. I mean, I think best practice with any adolescent patient um, is to make it normal to separate them from whoever they're with, at least for some of it and kind of get them ready for medical adulthood, but also be able to hear if there are things going on that they don't want to share with that person. Um, what if you feel like giving the hotline number and saying, see you next time is not going to cut it? Is there, are we just powerless or, or is there any recourse, any, any other options? So, and again, I think there's a difference between adults and then your adolescents or your minor um, potential victims in these cases, especially if they're hitting all the red flags. Uh, I know for the legislation here in Colorado, uh, it's a mandatory report for 
um, victims of human trafficking that goes to the child abuse hotline. Um, and then, you know, depending on what they're going there for, what's great about our task force here is that we have these proactive multidisciplinary team meetings in each jurisdiction that review a lot of the high-risk youth. And so with our referrals from our local healthcare providers, we can really do a great staffing of, hey, this kid is um, a missing person. Um, we need to respond right away. I get the calls from the social workers at the hospital to say, hey, this one, my gut feeling is this. I really think that this deserves a response. They will call locals to come out and respond. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's just dependent on the situation between an adult and a minor and how you can get that help immediately. That makes sense. And, and I just want to also remind everyone out there, um, although I've never really had to do this myself. Uh, there are times when we can just say, uh, you know, it's not safe to reunite this kid with the person they're with, even in the moment. And we're going to um, contact security and kind of hold this kid here until we figure out something further for their safety. If we think they're in immediate danger and it doesn't have to be, I think a mental health hold, I think there are other ways and I don't know specifically what they are. And it probably varies state to state and hospital to hospital. But if, if letting the kid leave and just having that phone call to child protection, and then that phone call to the FBI doesn't seem like enough and, and you feel uncomfortable, then don't let the kid leave. It would be kind of, I would say air on the, on that side and then figure out the legal stuff later. What are some of the vulnerabilities either individually, but then also um, what are maybe some of the, the factors just environmentally that can lead to more trafficking and people to become victimized? No, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities between environmental, between system-based and other intangible needs, especially with environmental, it's that uh, whether or not they're homeless, um, there's a substance abuse component where there might have a dual diagnosis. Uh, there may be gang involvement. Um, they come from, you know, these family dynamics where it might be a broken home or a domestic violence type background. When it comes to system involvement, it's whether or not they're involved in the juvenile justice system. A lot of our victims are involved with any some kind of a juvenile delinquency case, because if you think about it, when it comes to surviving, a lot of it is survival crimes. And so it may be uh, they were shoplifting because their trafficker didn't allow them to eat that night or they don't have any hygiene items. And that's where it kind of goes back to those questions of how are you getting your needs met? When was the last time you brushed your teeth? When was the last time you ate? And so that's a big piece of it is that those survival type crimes, they may have drugs on them. They may have a gun charge because they may be holding a gun for a trafficker. Um, the biggest one we're seeing lately is um, stealing cars. That's been a big one lately for us. So that's a big piece of the juvenile justice involvement. But I would say a good chunk of our victims come from some type of child protection care, whether or not they have been involved in the foster care system. And a lot of it is that they've ran away. So that's where we're really seeing and have adopted this high-risk model of looking at youth who have ran 
three or more times in the last year that have been gone for 30 days or longer, because that is one of the single most determinant factors of being a trafficking victim is how are you surviving? Because as we all know, in adolescence, their brain isn't fully developed yet. And so with that, they you know may not know how am I going to eat tonight? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And it's a lot of these traffickers grooming them and manipulating them and coming up to them and say, Hey, you're beautiful. Hey, you know, I can promise you this. I can take you back and we can party. And then they need to owe them. Um, what are some of the signs of that partying and that hotel lifestyle that, uh, folks out there, professionals or just anyone can can spot on social media if they're concerned about someone? You know, I think that, you know, especially when it comes to if you are on social media, it's, you know, you may be in uh, clothing that may be provocative. You might see uh, wads of cash or money um, being thrown around. You may see weapons being thrown around. You may see drug activity. Um, but yeah, with a lot of that, with that hotel background, because that's where we really try to hone in and focus on, especially when we're doing trainings with providers that have that interaction with you They say, get Google their phone number, uh, get on their social media, really check into them. And that's actually how we were able to recover a 14 year old a couple months ago was her social worker. Uh, she was in foster care and she had ran away and she just kept tabs on her, on her social media. And she noticed a photo of her being in a hotel room. So she immediately contacted us and said, Hey, um, this is what we're seeing. And we're like, Oh man, I bet you that she is working and somebody has turned her out and is trafficking her. And we were right. And we were able to, uh, recover her within a day. Wow. That's yeah. That's amazing. One of the things that the advantages that y'all have that we unfortunately don't have and why y'all can be a great help to us is we have, there's a lot of ethical HIPAA and legal related concerns regarding doctors publicly searching um, online for a patient. And um, so I think if you're thinking about doing something like that, I think make sure you check out the, the legalities of that. And then also it may be that that can be made more ethical or legal by while the patient is in your office asking if they're willing to show you their pictures or whatever's on their phone in front of them or asking the parent if they've looked at it, some kind of indirect thing where you're not actually going online and spying on their social media. Sorry, Aaron, back to you. Oh, no, thank you. That was really good information. I was just wondering, um, you know, it is, it does seem to be increasing over the years. And do you feel like that's due to just more awareness and, and, and you know, folks like you that are going out there and doing trainings and, and, and researching and understanding it and prosecuting and um, help, helping to, with the prosecution? Or is it, do you feel like um, it, there's something about American society or, or the world that is leading to more trafficking? I think it's more of what you mentioned of the awareness piece. And I've seen over the years where, uh, especially here in Colorado, we've really amped up our efforts to engage the community and engage service providers. I mean, 10 years ago, I didn't know a single service provider um, that had that trauma-informed response that 
background in understanding and recognizing human trafficking. And that's where we were doing constant reactive approaches when working with these victims. And now it's just come to fruition where we have so many service providers and awareness and we have legislation where we now have human trafficking as child abuse, which is why we've been able to work through HIPAA when having healthcare providers give us information about patients that uh, they're concerned about who are adolescents. And so I think it's definitely a lot more awareness um, that we're seeing. And because of that community partnership, we're getting more tips than we are then having to do a reactive response. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about sex trafficking with victim specialists at the Denver Division of the FBI and DAR. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. We also want to promote the website, thisishumantrafficking.com, which was put together by the Colorado Human Trafficking Council and its partners. You'll find a lot of helpful information there, uh, what to look for, how to help. If you think someone may be involved or is suffering from the effects of human trafficking, please know that there's a national human trafficking hotline, 888-373-7888. Thank you to our co-hosts, Tosha Yamaguchi and Al Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Okay, and now for the extended version. I'm wondering, um, it, do you feel like um, social media is making it, because I know social media is making it kind of easier to prosecute folks, but do you think it, it, do you think it also facilitates it? When it comes to social media, these traffickers, they're essentially psychopaths. They are extremely narcissistic. And so with that, they love to showcase um, what they have built with their empire. And so with that, either showcasing their money, their jewelry, their clothing, all of those aspects. And so it's been great for prosecution because we can actually showcase that to a jury. And what more can we want than see having a jury of your peers seeing a pimp in front of his vehicles and his money and, you know, whether or not be you know, a platform where he talks about making money, turning girls out or boys and showcasing his hotels that he's at. Um, it's, it's just a lot of that lifestyle that they want to showcase. I have a question for you, Anne. Sure. Um, I, I wonder if you have any tips for parents out there on how to protect their kids. I think a lot of that comes down to internet safety. I think that adolescents are so vulnerable to uh, self-esteem, to self-worth, and couple that with uh, issues at home, whether that be uh, witnessing domestic violence um, and seeing, you know, whether or not their grades are dropping, they're isolating themselves, they're not engaging with the same peer group. Um, they're having anxiety, depression, they're 
uh, obsessed with their phone, which I know we all know with adolescents, they're all obsessed with their phone, (laughs) but it's really ensuring that you have a pulse on what platforms are they on? Are you monitoring them? Because I had a case where I had a kiddo who was a straight A student and she had an after-school job at um, cleaning hotel rooms. And unfortunately, that's where she met the trafficker and indicated he could have her make more money. And she got pulled into this um, lifestyle. And luckily, her dad monitored her phone and saw text messages from the trafficker and sex buyers or what we call Johns or Tricks. Mm -hmm. Looking at those um, text messages really helped and he was able to report so it's having that pulse on phones, internet, platforms, all of those things. Do you recommend parents check their teenagers' phones? Oh, absolutely. Okay. 100%. And that concludes the extended version of This Gets with episode with our guest, Ann Dar.